You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. All right, guys, thanks for uh, listening in on another episode of Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. We got Corey today. What's happening? Hello, everyone. I'm going to introduce this guy. He's been a big influence in my whole career as a fisheries biologist. We have the uh, Coastal Research Coordinator, Kevin Dockendorf, here, and I've known him all of my career. He's always been a good guy to talk fishing. He's going to fit real well into the discussion and what we're doing here today. And we're going to talk about crappy fishing. Everybody likes it, but everybody thinks about crappy fishing. They don't think about the coast. They think a lot more about reservoir crappy fishing. And Kevin is a strong crappy biologist and a strong crappy fisherman. Absolutely is, for sure. The man can catch a crappy. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Kevin. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Ben and Corey. Great to be with you today. Ben, I greatly appreciate the comments. It's great to know you and have been fishing with you, been a part of your career. It's been great to see you grow through this career, and you are a heck of a biologist and fisherman. And Corey, same to you. Hey, Kevin, he doesn't need his head to swell. He gets that a lot on this podcast, so no more accolades for Ben today. We're done giving him accolades. Okay. So, yeah, I've been uh, with the Wildlife Commission for 20 years been uh, spending that time on the coastal plain. In about 2005, I started fishing for crappie on the coastal plain and have just learned it ever since because it's a struggle for us to sample crappie in coastal rivers, opportunities to actually get our hands on fish and be a part of that. And I got my bachelor's of science at Iowa State and my master's at Florida. My master's was in studying crappie in their early life history. And that really honed me in on there on crappy biology. So really appreciate the opportunity to be here today and chat a little bit more about them and my passion for them and sharing that with the anglers and folks listening out there. He kind of is the crappy guru because like I'm friends with him on Facebook and most of the fish pictures that he posts has a crappy in it. The man's going out crappy fishing. So definitely he's on them. He understands them. So a lot of good information out of Kevin today, I think. The cool thing is, I think most of the time, every fisherman kind of picks something that they focus mm-hmm. in yeah. on. Even if it's only seasonally, they have like, this time of year, I do this. Well, the cool thing about Kevin is, I do this all the time. This time of year, <laughs> for 12 months, yeah, that's right. I fish for crappie. Yeah. And then next year, for 12 months, I'm still going to fish for crappie. I'm still looking for crappie. And he may find something in the mix, yeah. but if he finds a crappie, even on an off-crappy day, the day just switched to crappie again. Again. You know? yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, pretty funny. All of his best days are crappy days. That's right. That's right. But no, it's cool. So one of the most unique things, and I kind of touched on it a minute ago, coastal crappy fishing is a very different thing than like reservoir crappy fishing. I mean, when you think about a reservoir, it's either clear or muddy, one of the two, most of the time, or relatively clear. And when we get into these coastal systems, we're talking about tannic, black water, sweet tea colored water. 
it's a whole different ball game of what to do, how to look for it. There is structure everywhere. Like in a reservoir, <laughs> there may not be structure. Right. You know, you can find the structure and you find the fish. In our coastal rivers, there are falling over cypress trees, every other tree. And so while that's a good thing, if you're a crappy fisherman, it's also more things to have to sort through, right, Kevin? Yes. Yeah. By the time you're kind of seeing this area, I think there might be a crappy here and you fish it. Maybe there was, but you've got somewhere else to go, whether that's a structure of a bridge piling, a railroad trestle, other docks, trees that are down, finding even that ledge along that side of the shoreline is big. And then in the wintertime coming up, you know, they're just starting to be in the, in the holes themselves. And then that deep water in the coastal plain that's something special in and of itself to find those deeper holes. Yeah. And for a lot of coastal anglers, crappy fishing is like a wintertime, you know, cold water, and then maybe the first part of the spring. But to be honest, they are crappy around all year long, you know, and they're, e- well, I don't want to say they're easy to find. They're relatively easy to find once you pick up on a few cues. And once you catch one, you should. <laughs> Fish it again. Realize <laughs> yeah. that you've caught one right. and then add to that as you build off of that. Yeah. Because catching yep. one, one, a buddy of mine says this, one is a fluke, two is something, and three is a pattern. And then you build off of that from that point forward. Absolutely. And I was thinking about that, you know, it's like that pattern that we're trying to find every part of that season, whatever month that is, what was that last pattern, whether that was a year ago or was that the last time I was out fishing? And then, you know, determining whether or not that's still going to work today. It's a lot of fun to try to apply that. And then usually in the summertime, it is pretty consistent. Mostly it's just finding those fish because they're looking for a little bit cooler water in that time of year on that coastal water. So, Kevin, tell us what's unique about coastal river crappy fishing. Well, the main thing about coastal river crappy is that, you know, the opportunity to be in these highly structured areas, but these open systems. We've got swamp water that drains down through these rivers and then out into the estuary. And that's important to keep in mind when we're talking about dissolved oxygen, which is important to fish, and also salinity levels. These are freshwater fish, but because we're close to the estuary, there is some salinity factors that can start to push in. Now, that isn't always a bad thing because we can actually have some diversity within the baits and forage fish that come up in those rivers. So like small medhaden is a big part of what I'm trying to mimic or match the hatch on, especially this time of year. So they're also tannic from the cypress knees and various things. So even though it's a black water systems, oftentimes they're clear. It's actually, if you were able to take a clear water jug and place it there, you're like, I can't, I see through this black water. Well, a high volume of that is a lot, but really there is some clarity there. And especially right now, we do have lower water levels, not as much rain. It's been dry. been dry. So there's relatively clear water, and it's really neat to fish it because you can actually now see that jig. But if it's been a rainy year, it might be black water with a little bit of creamer in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So to me, it doesn't really matter what you're fishing for, whether it's bass, whether it's catfish, crappy, stripers, whatever. We as anglers are trying to get in front of where they're going or where they've been. And we're trying to follow that. And we get, at the podcast, we get a tremendous amount of questions about crappy movement and how to find crappy 
and that kind of thing. So since we got the expert here, why don't a biologist and someone who fishes for them walk us through the seasonal movements of crappie through the season? So spring and then go from there. Yeah. So if we're talking about setting up for the winter time coming up, we might, you know, just kind of start there where they're usually in deeper holes where the temperatures are a little bit more stable throughout that winter season. Shallow water, it's more dynamic, so that water temperature changes just based on the overnight, and it could get warm, but maybe not that 60 degrees. And then as you move up into the springtime when they want to spawn, those males are starting to move up as that water temperature increases and becomes more steady. Now, back in the wintertime, will they come up shallow when the water warms, like during the day? Do you see them do that? Like, you know, on the coast, a lot of times, like speckled trout, for example, will be in those deep holes too. But as it warms, you know, you'll see them move up in shallower water. Will they do that as well? Yeah, I think they're basically testing that. They're gearing up for that spawning opportunity to be in that shallower water. But they can also just suspend to that foot, two foot just below, just where it's a little bit warmer. So that metabolism kicks in and they start feeding a little bit differently than they were during the morning or, Mm -hmm. you know, as you're out there. So sometimes 10, 11, 12 o'clock, as that water temperature kind of comes up, you'll notice a difference. But then as we move into the spring, now they're in that spawning pattern and they're aggregated up and, you know, you dabble a minnow about anywhere and you got a good chance of finding a crappie in that shallow system where they're trying to spawn or artificial baits too. And then as we move into the summer months, as they've done, gotten done spawn and they've kind of been in that deeper water, they're moving and finding that cooler water. They don't really need to have that high metabolism because they will just eat, eat, eat. That's kind of the thing we talk about is that crappie's going to eat every day. Maybe twice. I eat three times, <laughs> maybe four. You got a good opportunity with that increased water temperature. Now they're feeding more, more often in that. But still, it's high metabolism, warmer waters. They may have to find some shade to find the cooler water. So I kind of take benefits of the bridge pylons and the docks and those trees and early morning. And then as we move kind of closer to that fall time period, now they're kind of transitioning from that shaded area moving through finding those deeper holes to then set themselves up for that winter time and we kind of start that cycle again but everyone kind of has their own little hot spots if you will as to what month they want to fish and what spot they know they're going to be in and i think we've talked about it as a pattern once you kind of figure that out then you're in the game but it's going to be changing because of not only season but you got the dissolved oxygen issues and you got salinity that could be happening yeah, and I think the thing about crappie that that makes it such a popular fish amongst our anglers is that they do readily bite. They will feed. And if you figure out a pattern, you get a lot of action, you get a lot of activity. They're really good to eat. A lot of people like to eat them. And so I think if you look at, just look through our reservoir systems, and I'm sure it's true on the coastal plain too, but if you just look at our reservoir systems, it's the number two or number three fishery in the state Normally, it's number two in almost every reservoir throughout the Piedmont and most of the mountains. And it's like 60 to 80% of the fish that are caught are harvested. So a lot of people like to eat them too. So, I mean, that's the thing you're talking about, though, is once you figure out the pattern of the system you're in, and generally, I mean, it's going to change a little bit year to year based on environmental conditions around you. But once you kind of figure out those patterns, you can really hone in on crappy pretty well. Oh, yeah. I mean, and by that time, you know, you've got your little small set of jigs that you're going to try out, you know, as a go-to mm-hmm. pouch, you know, and even if it's new water, I'll have a white marabou jig 
and then incorporating that mini fluke work, right? In one of your earlier oh, podcasts. Straight and, tail. Even harder to beat. <laughs> Hard to beat a straight tail, I'm telling you. And then, you know, what we've learned with many other crappy anglers, if you share that information back and forth and test that, will it work here, will it work there? We learn about the profile of that bait, matching the hatch, and how important that is. So, and I really appreciate everyone that's out there fishing because you're out there on the water, you're watching, you're probably seeing baits that are dimpling and all that type of stuff. And we just keep learning and sharing. And that's why it's so great to just keep talking about it and have a conversation about crappy. And yes, they're delicious. They are good. So Kevin, like I said, we get this question all the time, but to me, spawning activity aside, the spring pattern is a lot like the fall pattern. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And the summer pattern, strangely enough, is a lot like the winter pattern. Very much so. And so once you get those two things figured out, the really the tricky times are those transition seasons. Right now. Right now. I mean, I, two weeks apart, Limit out 20 crappy, two hours. Next week, two weeks later, it's six in about the same two hour. And I'm using a similar pattern. So now it's like I'm feeling that transition happening. So now is it a battle of going to the fall spots I once knew or because of salinity, dissolved oxygen, those types of things, how do I start my day to where do I want to go? And with coastal rivers, there's so many options. With so many options, it's hard to choose. It's hard to choose. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then you have to say, where am I going today? Oh, yeah, I got this place, and I got this place and this place to test. And usually, I'm moving. I'll try it, whether they're biting or not. I'm not going to say, I know they're here, so I'm going to stay till they bite. No, I'm going to move to find them, and I'm not moving after I find that they're biting. <laughs> right, right. That's a very, I mean, I do the same thing in my fishing, is if you move, generally, I make a big move. If they're not on one side of the creek, odds are they're probably not biting on the other side of the creek. Yep. If you catch a few on one side, maybe the mother load's on the other side. Could be. But if you're just blanking, go blank somewhere else. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Don't keep beating your head against the wall. Find some fresh water, find some different conditions, and try that. If nothing else, it'll give you more hope. Right. Like, if you've been fishing there an hour and you hadn't caught anything, you haven't moved chances are that next hour is probably going to be about the same. It might not be, but at least if you move, you got hope. Okay, here's a new area. Here's a new area to try. And also what I found is that when you move, a lot of times you move to new places that you've probably maybe not fished before and you go exploring and all of a sudden you find things and you're like, oh, I need to remember that. Start putting the puzzle pieces. Yeah, the puzzle pieces start coming together. Like, I fished this over in this area. Now I'm fishing something that looks kind of similar over in this area, you know, and it works. So like those puzzle pieces kind of come together. So that's what I like about exploring. One, you find new places, you see new things, and and generally you will find new fishing spots by doing that. Yes. yes. Every day of crappy fishing and fishing in general is, okay, I have this body of knowledge, which pieces are going to go together today. Right. Yeah. The unknowns that become the knowns that may eventually inform the next set of unknowns but yeah, it's kind of that pattern in the puzzle. I like how you said that, Corey, about, you know, you're trying to figure out that puzzle for the day. And what can I pull from my arsenal of all that knowledge and win for the day? How am I going to be successful today? And some days you win, some days you don't. But, well, yeah, but you're out there. I tell folks this about tournament fishing, but it... But hold on, but if you're like me, if you're not winning, you just eat. <laughs> 
I just bring food. Go to the cooler. <laughs> yeah. Plan B. If you pass my boat and I'm eating, I'm not catching anything. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. But yeah, I said this about tournament fishing, but it's really about fishing in general. Is every day is form a plan, watch plan desperately fall apart, <laughs> form new plan, repeat. You know, I mean, there's very few days, especially if you're not fishing in successive days. Where you just go out there and you hammer them right out of the gate. Those are special Those days. Those are special days. They do happen, but they're days where your your first plan was your best plan. And there's a lot of days where that doesn't always happen. So let's talk a little bit about the baits you use, Kevin, because I know there's a lot of different baits. And I know in the coast, because of our tannic water, it's a little bit different presentation than what some of the lake and reservoir guys may be seeing so yeah and uh you know it was kind of an evolution i said you know about 2005 i really only used minnows you know minnow and jig which live bait live bait guys don't be too proud it will work it will work and it works great it's more or less that fish finder in terms of the crappy finder i fished from the bank a lot at that time i didn't have a boat so having that live bait was just like, okay, I'm going to fish this, I'm going to fish this. And then as I obtained a boat and uh, was able to get on the water, then I switched up using live bait and then trying artificial. And as I started with artificial and realizing that, wow, you know, if I can get them in front of that, I have so many more opportunities to hook a fish as compared to hooking another minnow or something like that. So Again, it's great. Live bait's great. Artificial baits are great. It is just fishing where the fish are and then trying to trick them to see if they'll come on that hook. And so I use those marabou jigs and flukes and those types of things, again, to kind of mimic that menhaden spawn, those fry balls that come to be a little bit bigger and they start to get a little bit deeper bodied. So I'm trying to follow those. And then the biologist kind of comes out of me sometimes and I, the fish I do harvest, I'll check their stomachs and see what they were eating. Some might be empty, but there's some that could be full of something that I could match next time. Right. That's a good plan. It's always, if you're cleaning fish, one more swipe of the knife, and you can figure out what they've been eating. Yep. So, yeah. yeah. And exactly. then you look at your tackle box and say, what looks like this? What do I got here? Right. And then the store's just down the road. That's plan, right. Plan for next time. And luckily, I mean, crappy soft plastics are made in... Everywhere. Everywhere and in every color. Yep. So if you can't find it in a crappy soft plastic, you don't need it because it's out there. It is. It's just so neat to see those and then those body, the body types getting that either wider profile or having a little bit longer, you know, about an inch and almost two inches is a really good starting inch and three quarters to two inches is a good bait size to start with. But of course you can catch them on bigger ones and the bigger fish certainly say on some of our systems where we do have quality size fish. You can find them on the trolling jigs and, and other things like that, trolling bandits. But I don't necessarily do all that. But I know there's plenty of other people that do and are very successful at that. So, again, I think it is just what you're used to, what you're having fun with, what you're catching them on, and keep finding them. Well, that's the take-home message of our podcast is get out there, go fishing, keep it simple. Yeah, I mean, Kevin was fishing off a bridge yeah, for start season. Exactly. He didn't even need a boat and was yeah, catching plenty right. of catfish. Just keep it simple. And I said catfish. Crappies. He caught catfish doing it too. I probably caught some white cats. The only way you're not going to catch a fish is by not going. That's right. You know. So the catfish guy. Speaking of catfish, it's a segue. Segue into catfish on a crappy podcast. Wait, bear with me. Okay. You know, we talked about how 
cat fishermen have to have all their rods matching. They got the they most do. stylish rods <laughs> special. ever. Yes. yes. Well, crappy fishermen in the recent years have the absolute longest fishing rods yeah. I have ever seen. Looks like a, about 25 feet long. I don't think they, they are, but that's what they look okay. like. I think a crappy fisherman went out to the Outer Banks and saw a guy surf fishing and said, that's about what I need. Yeah. You know. To pull in a 12-inch fish. Pretty much. I did see there was like an 18-foot one is now out there. But, you know, that's big, and that's with the spider rig, and that's a big part of how you seek out because we, we talk about how fish might see a boat or you want to get far enough away from them, not make so much noise and stuff like that. Well, stick those 12 to 18 foot rods out there and have 16 of so them. So is that the point of the longer rods is to get them away from the boat or is it the sensitivity that you're looking for? Or is it both? I, I don't know. I, I'm not as huge a crappy fisherman, so I don't really know. Step one is you can catch a crappy on a normal ultralight oh, yeah. or that, light. That's right. the only way I catch them. <laughs> You don't need fancy equipment, yeah. but we as fishermen need all the gadgets and gizmos that we can get because yeah. that's what happens. I mean, if I was all in on crappy fishing, I'd have uh, probably 20 12-foot rods. But it's all about the presentation, right? Presentation, and then if you back it up to where are they at to give them a presentation. So if you're in 25 foot of water, you know, on a winter day, are they at two feet or are they at 10 feet? Do they want shiny? Do they want minnow? You know, so first you get some of those options and then they can also like then work that in to find that. And then how long that rod is, as, as experienced you are or as novice as you are, is what's going to, and that's usually what my challenge is, is I've tried it and I just can't, you know, it's an art to be able to have 16 rods and work them and have crappy on all the time. So, so when you're fishing in the coastal plain, generally what size rod, like tell us what kind of gear that you generally use beyond baits, what gear do you use? Okay, so I'm using about a six, six and a half foot rod, spinning reel. I use about six pound test. I, mean, I do keep it simple. I just uh, monofilament line, tie the jig to that, and use that around structure and bridge pylons. I really enjoy single rod fishing and feeling that thump. But again, as I said earlier, everyone has their own way. And it, I mean, there's so many ways that it works to put crappy in a boat and take them home to eat or release them. As they say, the world's your oyster, but I guess in this case, the world's your crappy. I mean, it's there's great opportunity there. So do people spotter rig on the coast? Do you see them yes. doing that? I know that's a very common practice yes. on, on the Piedmont, but I didn't know on the coast if that was yes, or not. Yes, very much so. I mean, I see them out all the time up in those rivers, and they do great. They can lift that up in one time and make a turn, and that everything's set back up. It, it's just really fascinating to watch, and they can catch a lot of fish in a short period of time. So the setup that Kevin talked about was really nearly the exact same that we used last year with our director, Crappy Fishing. I've used the old long poles one time, and we weren't spider rigging, but we were dropping, and it was a very effective method, but we were dropping straight down into structure. Oh, yeah. And so we were fishing, like it was no casts involved. It was just straight down, and the structure was so tight that if you didn't drop it straight down, You're gonna be tangled up. you donated that jig. To be more structured. Yes. Yeah. And that's what yeah. I quickly learned is it was a straight down and straight up. And if you did anything other than that, you would donate your jig and get to choose another jig head or weight or color. So there's different ways to use those long poles, but they were surprisingly, there is a place for them. Not necessarily that you have to have them, but there's a place for them. And if I think there's also, you have to get used to it because it's an ungangly setup. I mean, it's a 12-foot rod 
with a 30-second ounce jig head <laughs> is a, a unique thing yeah. to do. Yep. And they put big reels on them. They put like 3,000 reels on them just to offset the weight. Which, uh. when you think about it, you're like, why do I need this big reel to catch a crappie? And it's because they're balance. you're balancing that right. Uh. So... I was glad that I did it the time that I did it. It was a learning experience for sure, but it was also very effective. Yes. Yeah. And I have two 10-foot rods that I use for that jig. And if that's six and a half, and I'm trying to do that, just drop it on in and lift it. And a lot of times, hardly any movement is a big part of it. Just let that jig do that work. Your hand just twitching is changing how that jig is looking in front of a crappy well and i know we're going to get to it in a minute but the day that i did it we were using forward facing sonar and it was amazing to me how much a little twitch really moves a jig like when you say you're holding it still you're really not holding it still like that thing especially if you got a a small fine straight tail that thing's wiggling all over the place and you don't even know it just from the the motion of the boat in your hand and all that stuff but when you twitch it, that jig moves two or three feet. Yeah. And seen it on uh, forward-facing sonar. But when I was growing up as a kid in Iowa, we did a lot of ice fishing. And so by having those jigs down below in the hole, you can actually see that jig. And I can actually watch the fish come and approach that jig. And just the slightest movement could move them or they'd come closer. Right. And so that was kind of that, keeping that in my arsenal. And then I kind of apply that here with these. and. I mean, I use small stuff and keep it as still as possible really during the summertime. Don't know why, but that's really a great way to do it. And I think it's just, they see that and maybe, maybe the baits are like, Ooh, there's nothing around me. And then boom, they get, you know, thumped on by a crappy from the bottom type of thing. So let's put on a biologist hat for a minute because that's what we're doing here. If I'm a fisherman and you say you've looked at the diets, what are they, I mean, we talked about menhaden, but what are crappy eating most of the time? Well, you know, if we're talking about their diets where as juveniles, they're eating smaller insects and those types of things. And the idea is, is they want to try to switch over to that fish. They do become more of a, a piscivore or eating that bait. I've even seen small largemouth bass. You know, it's a fish-eat-fish world out there. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, if it fits in there, they're going after it. They might even eat themselves. If it's, you know, a cannibalistic opportunity, they're going to eat a smaller fish. But more than likely, some shiners that are in the system or some what they call pop-gut minnows, those types of baits that are out there. But again, if you've got the menhaden and we have other, say, even on the coastal plain where we've got Larval herring, larval shad, larval striped bass, they're looking for those fish moving out as well. Something in that one to maybe three inch on the top side range. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and so I think that's what's nice about the coastal plain is it isn't that kind of like, well, the freshwater spawn's done, and now we're kind of battling for zooplankton or bugs or something There's like that. There's always something coming by. There's always something a little mm-hmm. bit a part of that. And as far as, you know, those are some of the things about the density dependence and those things that we talk about in reservoirs and those types of things, but such high harvest on the coast and we still see eight, 10 inch fish in their, you know, first and second years of life. So they're growing fast and they're dying young. I mean, that's how we all kind of talk about them. So what they're eating to get to that point, but eventually they could be limited in some of the foods that they do have available again, depending on the year. So 
it's a tough environment to live in at times. And I think the growth rates aren't as they're fast, whether or not they're actually eating everything all the time to maintain that fast growth rate. I think that's one of the limitations in the coastal plain. So when it comes to crappy fishing, we've got two main species in North Carolina. Yes. Thanks. I was looking for confirmation. <laughs> really, Ben, keep telling us about these two main species. Corey was just stink-eyeing me on that one. Where's he going with this? In the coast, <laughs> we really only have one. I think in my career, I've seen maybe two white crappie. But for the most part, 99.9% of our crappie are black crappie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think very few have ever sampled them. You're probably, you know, uh, white crappie. But there's a difference, you know, where white crappie tend to like a little bit turbid water and black crappie a little bit more clear. And they have a little bit different tolerance to that pH that changes a little bit over there. Yeah, white yeah. crappie just haven't come down. It's just a different system altogether. It you is. know, you got that lower pH in the coastal plain. You just don't get that as much in the Piedmont. But even in the Piedmont, White crappie are not nearly as abundant as black crappie are. You have to get pretty far west. You have to get kind of in the foothills or just east of the foothills for white crappie to really show up in abundance for whatever reason in North Carolina. A few years ago, I was taking some ichthyologist people who study fish taxonomy, and they gave me a list of things they wanted to take pictures of for some fish identification materials. And I looked, the first thing on the list was white crappie. I was like, I'm going to go ahead and tell you all, we will not see one of those. And if you're a fisherman, you already know this, but fish will make a liar out of you in a hot minute. <laughs> yes. The very first fish we saw of the day was a white crappie. I was like, this is the first one I've ever collected in this river. I don't even know where it came from. <laughs> it's like the fish fairy dropped it just to prove you wrong. Just to make me not true. Yeah, you know? that's right. But the other really cool thing is there's, I don't know, what we call it, a cousin of the crappie? Distant cousin? Eh, Ish. They're in the same family. They're in the same family. Yeah. That we have in the coast called the flyer that is, I think it's Kevin's soulfish. It might be Kevin's soulfish. Very similar behaviors, maybe a little swampier in nature, but the flyer is another fish that when you crappy fish in coastal North Carolina, you find flyers. And really, while they are in other places in the state, they're fairly unique, especially in size, to coastal North Carolina. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the flyer as he smiles and yeah, his heart flutters. Yeah, flyer, pretty <laughs> neat. Uh, you know, growing up in Iowa, I knew nothing about him except for the Fishes of Missouri book had a few of them in there. So as I came here, I was like, fishing crappy. Look, Kevin, I grew up in eastern North Carolina, and I knew nothing about a flyer. That's how rare a flyer is. Large have, flyers are pretty unique to northeastern North Carolina. They are unique to where Kevin lives, in my opinion, but anyway. And they're strong on the Lumber River as well. And then Northeast North Carolina, they're strong too. And yeah, that size is, it's unreal. Because most of the time, oh, you're just catching aquarium fish. Or how do you even catch them on hook and line? They're so small. If you talk to other biologists, I'm like, look, here's some pictures. 17 of them, eight inches or greater. I can't explain it, but you know, it's just I've like, seen the pictures, folks. He does catch them. And people ask like, oh, that's not a true species. I mean, it's it's a cross between a bluegill and a crappie. You've caught some bluegill, you caught some crappie. That's just a hybrid. And I'm like, no, it is actually its own species. Will they cross with others? Who knows? But it's interesting to find them. And when you do catch them, they just look like a big dinner plate with a bunch of points around them. You know, the dorsal spines and the bottom spine, just a lot of points around those fish. They're just really cool. And as Ben said, I agree. You know, I think they're 
somewhat in that same crappy pattern, use the same jigs. It's just where I'm at in that headwaters of the swamp, where where the swamp and the upper part of that river is meeting. Yeah, they're much more of a swampy. That's what they like. So if you were targeting flyers, you're looking for more of the backwater, kind of upper part of the watershed, like in the backs of creeks, that kind of stuff, where crappy would be. Because, I mean, not, I mean, I've caught crappy on the coast in what looks like a floodplain, you know, kind of thing. Is that kind of similar-looking type habitats? Yep. And what I like to think about it is as you get up there and you're, you're in those, you know there's six, ten foot of water, but you can touch almost touch both sides with your hands, mm-hmm. just, you know, grabbing the trees and that type of stuff. So find them up in that headwaters of those creeks is where they're found. And then the lily pads are a big indicator. If you find that upper swamp area, lily pad beds are big indicators that a flyer might be around that area. And some of the best holes I have for flyer, there's lily pads. Man, this is like... Hardcore flyer fishing. I told the guy last year, he asked me about it. I said, if your elbows aren't touching trees at the same time, you probably aren't up there far enough. Honestly, that'd probably explain why I never, I mean, you know, I grew up in Newburn and grew up fishing upstream of Newburn, you know, which is a lot of crappy fishing goes on in there, but I just never saw flyers. When you started catching them, I was like, I know of flyers. I've seen them in jars, you know, going through school, but I've never seen one alive before. And this man is catching like... 10 80 inch flyers a day and i'm like what is going on you know kind of things so that would explain some of that for sure we used to catch them growing i mean my dad took me to the Chowan and north yeah. river and maharan and we'd catch them growing up but we were mostly fly fishing with popping bugs oh, is yeah. what we did and so we didn't catch flyers we'd catch them but they were a little more unique to get them to eat a bug on yeah, the surface. Yeah, it was an off chance. I mean, you're just catching them on. Right. I mean, I would throw jigs before I learned to fly fish. I would throw jigs and that kind of stuff, and we'd catch them that way too. But really, the crappy style of fishing seems to get you more than like a bluegill style of fishing. So you've electrofished a ton of District 2 water and District 1 for yes. that matter. But District 2 in particular, which is the central part of the coast, which is where I'm from and where you live now, mm-hmm. do you see a ton of flyers there when you're electrofishing? Not like what we'd see. Well, to take that a step further, you might not see them anyway. Flyers are relatively hard to sample in yeah. general. And crappy, crappy kind of have that technique that's hard to sample. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. You know, we have, there's two questions wrapped up. But one is, we as biologists, it's our job to Sample fish, get the data, and then make recommendations. And crappy are a very tough one to really get a handle of. Kevin, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and especially in the coastal plain. And I know Corey's giving me the eye about like, well, we can, I can catch thousands to, of them in the Piedmont. I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> and so, what's really interesting is it's that how reservoirs are relatively gentle sloped as compared to coastal rivers that are that steep slope. You know, you walk out six feet and you're pretty much in 10 foot of water if you're in a coastal river, but do that in a reservoir, you still might have two foot of water. So trap net works really, really well in that shallow slope, but not necessarily deep slope. And we've tried different ways to set those trap nets up to be either floating or sinking. And it's all about how that fence is set up. And then are you even in the right area? Are you there at the right time? And so we're still trying to figure some of that out, but we have had a chance to put our hands on fish and see their, you know, when we get their odorless and age and growth and all of that, we know they're fast growing, but we really can't get a handle on abundance. 
in terms of how we say something as a relative abundance. We use this gear. We got, as you said, a thousand that turns out to be 300 a net night or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on the coastal plane, if we're getting two a net night, we're doing pretty dang good. So that's not a good, efficient way to use our time. So there's opportunities for us to do that maybe a little bit differently. Incorporating multiple gears is a big type of thing. Usually we try to say, well, we're going to use a single gear, boat electrofishing, largemouth bass, you know, and that's our relative abundance, whatever that might be. But with crappy, it's almost like you need to use multiple gears to get to that multiple sizes of fish. In the fall, they might be four to five inches and you might have to use one gear and then electrofishing might catch a few more, the bigger ones. And then Maybe even hook and line sampling is an opportunity to get our hands on those fish. I'm in for that one. That's the one I'm in on. That's the one. He just wants to catch a flyer. <laughs> yeah, I just want to catch a flyer. And flyer are <laughs> tough. I mean, that was a great question about where do we find them? How often do you find them? I mean, we're working on a small project now just across their range. And it is so hard to find the flyer data that's out there. We generally just don't touch enough of them to do links and weights and everything because we don't see them that often. And if you go into our databases, just routine sampling, we're not picking them up in a time, you know, that it's just available. So it is almost like a very targeted specific way we would have to sample to do that. And it's still tough (laughs) at times. And, you know, during the springtime when they're in aggregations, like, you know, I think that's when flyers are really susceptible to angling and they're more out but as you get to summer and fall i don't necessarily catch them as frequently as i do in the spring type of thing i got you they're kind of like the mystery fish of the coastal plain they're cool fish yeah they're no cool looking. yeah it's neat so one other thing we've mentioned multiple times that these fish grow fast and they do you know an old crappy is like seven years old yeah you know, that's a well, Methuselah crappy on the coastal plain. On the coast. In the Piedmont, you can get them a lot older than that. You, right, I've right. seen them 16, 18 years old. But generally, that is a stunted population. That's a population right. that's struggling. Like, if it's a normal population like coast and a Piedmont that's growing fast, like we're talking about, man, five, six, seven years old is about it. Yeah. I think in most of the samples I've done, other than maybe a stunted population, seven to 10 is like your max age. So not shorter lived than like a largemouth bass on mm-hmm. average. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we have a lot of different length limits. We have places that don't have length limits. We have people asking us for length limits. And it's really specific to that population as to whether or not a length limit or a krill limit will work. And the best example I know of that is we had some anglers ask us about a length limit on Tolls Creek years ago. We did a survey. They wanted a 10-inch length limit, and the fish capped out at 10 inches. So a 10-inch length limit would have essentially been a moratorium in that system, you know, which is not at all what the guys wanted and gals. And that's why some people or some anglers will say, well, they have a 10-inch length limit. Why can't we have one? And it's very unique to the system as to whether or not that's an actual good plan or not. Right. And as we said, they have a high harvest rate. So, I mean, when we're talking in the 70 to 80% harvest, and people are catching those fish, that might be exactly what's needed to keep them in that size range versus in other cases, it's we do need a length limit and a bag limit because their growth rates aren't necessarily right there to help do that. And that could be in 
20 miles apart, depending on what those systems and the, the water quality and all those types of things. So we do our best to try to listen and also get the data and then say, but we're already maxed out here. Like you're saying, you know, it's like, well, if we're already at 10 inches, then they can't get any bigger. Corey says this all the time that not everything can be everything. Yes. You can't grow everything everywhere. It just doesn't work. The water doesn't work. The water quality is not all the same. The forage base is not the same. So not every system can produce a 16-inch crappie. Right. You know, going back to the, <laughs> the thing about the rules, you know, yeah, well, not many systems can produce 16-inch right. crappie on a regular basis. But anyway, going back to regulations, thinking back over my career, probably about 18 or so years ago, there was a push amongst our biologists in the commission. They wanted a statewide crappie rule. They wanted eight inches and 20 fish creel limit across the state to simplify the rule. I was like, I, that's not going to work in my district. I was working in District 5 at the time. I was like, that is not going to work in my district. I was like, I got places that don't need any rules because they're, most of my places were stunted. They weren't even growing great. And then on the other end, I had Jordan Lake at the time that was growing like gangbusters yep. and needed even more of a limit you yeah. know, on it than that. So particularly with those fast-growing, high-harvest fisheries, you can't set these kind of blanket rules. And like Kevin was saying, one rule might work here, and five minutes down the road, that rule is a horrible idea. Even though as an angler, and when you don't get to see some of the behind the scenes of the biology, even as an angler, I understand it. You go to that fishery, and they have a a 10-inch, 20-fish creel, and it's gangbusters. Like, you're catching big fish, and you're like, this is awesome. We need that rule over here on, on this other water body. And the truth of the matter is, that's the last thing you need on that water body because it's going to make it worse, not better. Right, right. And we're trying to make it better, but when it can't get there, yeah, we're not really doing ourselves or the anglers or the resources a good service. Sometimes it's, we're just limited in nutrient flow and the base of the food chain is just limited. Lake Norman's a real good example of that. It's gin clear. It has low nutrient flow into the system. And everybody thinks we should be growing, you know, 20-pound X or 12-pound largemouth or whatever. And the truth of the matter is, that's an unrealistic expectation for that body of water. It's just not going to happen, you know, and you have to have realistic expectations of what's in front of you. Yeah, and sometimes, too, in the coastal plain where we do experience fish kills at time and we can actually lose some fish from all sizes, that length limit is there to help, in a way, protect that next cohort to grow into and spawn and that type of stuff as well. I mean, if we had no link limit at all, we wouldn't necessarily have that protection, but at the same time, the fish weren't necessarily there. But no, everywhere is a little bit different. And I mean, that's what's great about being on here is to talk specifically about those. And then if there are questions from anglers about, well, what about this system, right? Then we can work within that. And as long as it's like, well, this has to be over here. Well, if we can work on that, hopefully have opportunities to share the biology as well. Yeah. And the thing, you know, you've heard Ben and I say this numerous times on the podcast. If you want to know information, contact your local district biologist, share what you've seen, share what you know. We want to hear from you. We learn a lot from our anglers. You see things sometimes that we haven't seen, but I also think you'll learn a lot from us too. There's a lot of behind the scenes biology that we have that we can share with you that Hopefully through this podcast and through talking with your local biologist, you'll just learn more and more about the biology and it'll help you become a better fisherman over time. I got one more question for the crappy expert. Please do. We get a lot of questions. I would say a fair 
percentage of our questions are from pond owners yep. mm. asking many different things. And since we have the crappy expert and a big time crappy lover yes. of all things crappy, <laughs> I think it'd be a great time to say, Kevin, as much as you love crappy, would you put them in a pond? It's very difficult to even think about putting them upon that. It will be small. They'll overstunt and they will spawn and do well, but you'll see a lot of small ones. And so your opportunities to have a bigger crappy, unless you're harvesting every day to grow that one crappy. <laughs> every day. Every day. That with one impunity. <laughs> now, you know, and again, size of that pond was important. I mean, if you're talking about a 25 acre to, you know, if that's a pond, there is potential, but you have to still be on top of that. Even steel harvest has to be pretty high. Right. You have to be monitoring that and working towards that. And we do not condone, but there are exceptions. I've seen a couple of them where, my goodness gracious, you know, but the key was harvest and it was, it was a manageable harvest and they had some great crappy in that pond. So it does just matter about paying attention to your pond and managing that accordingly. And in the Northeast, part of North Carolina, we have mill ponds that have decent crappie in them. Instead of harvest, they have fish kills. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately or fortunately. Where the oxygen yeah. just gets too low. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the other factor is they got so much going against them with dissolved oxygen or salinity or that type of stuff that does influence their growth and their age of maximum ages. So, but yeah, every system's different. And if you know your system as a pond owner and you, you have a plan and you can do that, but yeah. It's a tough It's the exception rather than the rule, I think, yeah. is a take-home yeah. message. It can happen. I'm not saying it can't, but I wouldn't just go out and say I'm going to be. It is very hard to say my goal is to have a trophy crappy pond and, and it work out for you. Every time, right. Yeah, it could, but. But yeah, I wanted to touch on that. Kevin, is there anything else that you said, man, if I don't get a chance to say this, I'm going to be remiss. And it cannot be accolades for Ben. No more accolades for Ben. Accolades for me is fine. That'd be great. You know, y'all do a great job. And I just was going (laughs) to highlight, you know. Please send accolades to Two Bald Biologists at ncwildlife.org. I'll forward them to Corey. Some folks ask about how do you identify because they look a little bit different. We talk about dorsal fin spines, you know, seven to eight in a black crappie and a little bit fewer in the white crappie. And the one way I remember that from ichthyology class was annularis, the species names for white crappie, has fewer letters. Then Niger Maculatus, which has more letters. He nerded out on us right at the end. He I told us it. he was going to do he that. He told us. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no. But other than that, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and share my passion for crappy. Uh, flyer have a little bit uh, sweeter meat than crappy when you eat it. Uh, the deliciousness oh, is even. Cinnamon roll of crappy fillet. <laughs> <laughs> the cinnamon roll of fish. <laughs> so those are the two things I was going to add there. But uh, No, that's good. The one thing I'll add, one, thanks, Kevin, for being here. It's been a great time and wealth of knowledge. But Kevin's also a TV star. So if you'd (laughs) like to see him catch crappies and flyers in the northeastern part of our state, go to Carolina All Out on YouTube, look up the episode on crappies and flyers, and you will find Kevin catching crappies and flyers. And he'll show you all about how he does it. It's a pretty cool technique, and I enjoyed watching the video as well. Sure. No, it was a great show. Yeah, Uh, And they caught... Right many fish yep. and did not use more than maybe about $20 worth of tackle in the whole show. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Definitely a refreshing yep. piece of tackle sh- or fishing show to watch. Yeah. So it worked out great. So 
We've got a few angler questions we're going to roll through. Well, we have been inundated with angler questions here lately because of our live. We asked for it, and you guys came through. And you guys came through strong, and we really appreciate it. Ben's been plugging through questions. Still not through them. Yeah, I've been on leave, so that was part of my issue. And most of the questions go directly to Ben, and then he forwards them to me, so it's a little bit of a... So, but we Circle. appreciate it. I'm not complaining at all. No, no. Please keep sending your questions. They've been great, and we've been trying to get them out to different biologists if we don't know the answer, and, and Ben's been answering a bunch of them as well, so it's been good. So, yeah, we're farming them out. As we always do, Corey and I are not experts in everything. Some might whoa, even whoa, argue whoa, 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 back up. that we're not experts <laughs> in anything. <laughs> but we're trying to help, and we're trying to get your question in the hands of who we feel that would be the best to answer that question. Yeah. This morning, I picked out a few questions, and because of our honored guest here, they are crappy-centric questions. That'd be great. They're still good questions. Yeah. So, the first one, and this is probably going to fall more in Corey's wheelhouse, as a matter of fact, oh, Lord. is there's no krill limit. And we kind of talked about this a little bit, but there's no krill limit on the PD lakes like Baden, Tillery, Tuckertown, and... Could this be an overpressured fishery or overharvested as a result? The short answer is no. I mean, could it be over the long term? Maybe, but it could happen. It, it could happen for sure. I'm not going to say no, but history has shown us on the Yadkin PD chain that we have these really large spawning events that happen. It's based on flow. So as flow goes up, we generally have pretty good spawning events, and those spawning events are massive. So we'll have these really large year classes that come through. And you can have really large year classes year after year after year after year if you have high flow. Even in the low flow years, we still have good recruitment. So it's not like if it's a low flow year, they don't spawn at all. That's not the case with crappy on the Atkins. So there's generally a baseline level, but then there's these big, huge year classes and it causes overcrowding. And so... The lakes that really can support that are the kind of higher turbid, like the upper end of it, the high rocks, the Tucker Towns, and then you get down into Baden and Tillery, they can handle it too. But generally, like high rock, it's just a fish factory, and you can go out there and you can catch cooler fools. If I mean, there's of eight inch, nine inch fish all day long. So it really produces a lot of crappy. Don't know that it'll ever be like a trophy crappy fishery. Just because there's so many fish in the system. Mm -hmm. And so we had a limit out there at one time and it was not working. It was going against us. It was actually working against us because we were keeping more. We had an eight and 20 that was on the entire chain. And we removed it because one, anglers saw that it really wasn't working for them. And two, there's just so many fish there. But once again, like what we were talking about before, not everybody needs a rule. Right. And I think it's important, you know, and that's what we're here for. But reach out to your local fish biologist and say, hey, explain to me why the regs are the way the regs are, because none of them were chosen arbitrarily. Well, maybe some a long time ago. <laughs> but there's a reason why they're still standing. And we're doing surveys yeah, that's true. every year, not in every lake, but we're doing surveys every year to make sure that our regs are appropriate for yeah, the system. That's right. And so... I'd like to add one thing to the overpressured part of that question is the management itself isn't going to make the fish overpressured or not. The popularity of the lake is what makes a fishery overpressured. And the best way to get around that where you feel like, man, these fish have just been beat to death and I can't catch them is to, one, fish for fish, not for boats. 
get away from the crowds, go do something slightly different, go fish some different water. And I think you'll be surprised if you find some fresh fish. Yeah, that's true about every fish, really. And in all actuality, if you're fishing around a bunch of boats and those boats been there all week, those fish are tired of seeing it. Right. So you find some new fish, start in the community holes, but once you get a pattern figured out, try to take it to somewhere else in that lake or that river. Do your own thing. The next question, Kevin may have an answer for us on this one. That'd be good. We're looking for very specific. How many eggs does a crappie lay? Well, depending on the size of that fish. <laughs> More than seven and less than a billion. Right. Yeah, it's right in that range. That's very specific, Ben. Thank you. Between 30,000 and 200,000, depending on the size and the system of what those can be. So those older females are important to these systems. But at the same time, so are a bunch of young females that are carrying the thirty to 40,000 eggs. And that's where those strong ear classes come from is they're all spawning. So everyone that's available to spawn is going to, and we often talk about boom or bust populations. Corey kind of said there's some baseline pieces, but when you do get those swings in that abundance, there's some environmental factor that's likely influencing that bust or the boom if it's a low population versus a high cohort. So, but yeah, they can lay a good number of eggs for their population. And we talked about boom and bust, and we've said that multiple times. And it relates back to the second part of his question. He says, what percentage of fish make it to mature fish? And I think, one, there's no hard and fast number on that. But when conditions are good, more of them will survive. And when conditions are bad, either low water or too high water, something like that, or too cold of a spring or a cold front, a warm piece, and then a harsh cold front for a couple of weeks, that can knock them back too. But that kind of all gets back to that boom or bust spawning. But the thing that we got to remember on when we start with eggs and we're saying millions and billions of eggs are getting laid, the mortality rates initially are like 50 to 60% an hour or a day. Yeah, Yeah, just on the eggs. So you have to start with a whole bunch of, bunch of, bunch of fish or a bunch of, bunch of eggs just to warrant one mature fish at two to three years old. But they're designed that way. I mean, that's part of their life history. They know they need to lay hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of eggs as a population in order to keep the population going. So they've got all that figured out. Yeah, I mean, that's just how they were set up. That's how they're designed. And so it's okay that that many fish are dying. It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just the life history strategy that works for them. Yep, they are sunfish, so they're nest spawners, and a male might attract multiple females to lay in that nest. So the nest could actually generate a heck of a lot more, but it depends on that male guarding it and any other predation there. So that early life history is, you know, we often say it's set by wintertime. You know, we're going to know a little bit more about that population, especially as they get through that summer and get into that first winter and then come out of that. Then those numbers are really what we can say, are they set? Is this cohort going to be weak or strong? Because now is a matter of now they're bigger. They might not be getting eaten up. Are they stunted? They'll never get any bigger than this or these are looking great, you know. So just getting our hands on the adults, sub-adults and adults, help us tell the story about how this population is working as well. That works for me. I got one more. Mr. Haley, he got skunked on October 23rd. He says it happened to be a full moon. He knows, he said this kind of tongue-in-cheek with a little smiley face behind it. 
So he jokingly said, I know it couldn't have been me or my equipment. <laughs> okay. He said like a true fisherman. <laughs> yeah. You know. It had nothing to do with it's me. It's not that I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Yeah. But he did notice that the moon, it was a full moon that day, and he wanted to ask us, how does a moon affect the bite? Now, the first question I'll ask, we got three fish biologists at the table. In any of your fish classes, did they ever talk about the moon? No. No. Okay. So there's that. Right. That being said, it doesn't change fish populations, but it may change fish feeding behavior in that window. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I'm yeah. not one of these moon worshipers at all. I say go fishing. Yeah. Go fishing. Doesn't matter what the moon is, go fishing. I mean, I would say a full moon will definitely, I think they definitely feed more at night because they can see better. Especially in a relatively clear Yeah, system. relatively clear systems. For instance, my history with Lake Norman, we go out on a full moon. I mean, you can see your partner on the boat. It's so bright out there, and we could catch fish pretty steady throughout the night on a full moon. So I do think there's something to that, you know. So if you're not fishing the full moon and you go out during the day, you're like, these fish are not biting. What in the world is going on? Well, they might have fed all night long kind of thing. So I, I do think there's some of that. You know, it also affects tides. I mean, if you're on the coast, the tides are different based on the moon. That might have some effect depending on where you are. I don't know. I'm not a moon worshiper either. I don't watch moon. I just go fishing. I don't get to fish that much, so I go fishing when I can. Yeah, and, and then the low light conditions are somewhat favored. by speckled perch is another name for them, but for the crappy where that full moon gives them that low light condition, sometimes your catch rates are better on a cloudy day than they are on a sunny day. You're trying to, you know, that biology of that fish matters as to what that light conditions and how they're going to feed. And if they were feeding all night long and we're out there at 9 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, and they're not biting, yeah, they might be full, but give them some time and they might be biting again. Or there's a group of them that's going to be biting. So my take on it is, and then we'll wrap this up, don't hang your hat on any one variable. Now, if you've had a bad day and you need to blame it on something, <laughs> blame it on the moon. I think the moon's a great yeah. one. The moon doesn't talk back, doesn't say, no, you're wrong. The moon won't get its feelings hurt. Yeah, that's right. So you, that way you don't have to blame it on your partner or where he drove the boat or that his boat wasn't maintained the way it needed to be. Just put it on the moon and it'll be fine. <laughs> I blame the wind a lot. So. There's so many variables <laughs> like the wind, like the turbidity, like the cloud covers Kevin just mentioned, the rainfall. There's so many variables that I caution anybody who hangs their hat on any one variable yeah. because there's a, probably 15 factors. And if we really started making a list, we'd probably double that as far as what could impact how this fish behaves. And you as a fisherman have to kind of survey the situation and go on your gut and its instinct. And it's these little subtle cues that we're always picking up on that helps us put all those puzzle pieces together in a given day. And sometimes those puzzle pieces never go together. And it could be because the moon was full or because it was too turbid or because of a temperature change or the wind a pressure was blowing change. From the north or the wind was blowing from the south. But as far as, like, our official training, there was never one specific thing that was like, you might as well not go if it's this. They will not do what you want them to do. Yeah. So that would be my take on it is just because it's a full moon, they could. But I will say this. If you keep track of stuff like that, like the good times and the bad times and keep so I fish with a guy, he keeps track of all those environmental conditions, whether sunny, cloudy, turbid, 
windy, what direction the wind was coming from. It will from, help you. It will help you be a better fisherman. It will. And Moon, too. He keeps track of all that kind of stuff. But he also fishes all the time regardless. He fishes all the time regardless. <laughs> he doesn't stop him from fishing. But my point was, is, you know, yeah, if you know that consistently this kind of general area, this kind of general pattern is on this wind under this condition, that just might be what the fish like to do. And so it's what we talk about a lot on this podcast. If you learn to think like what that fish is trying to think like, you will become a better fisherman. And so keeping track of some of those things, some people don't like to do that. And I get it. Some people just like to go fishing. That's kind of my jam. I don't like to do it. I keep enough fish records. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, we all, all three of us keep a lot of fish records. But he keeps it in a journal and he goes back to it and he's like, okay, I consistently was doing this and this is what the weather patterns were. But the cool thing is with social media, you can go back and look at your pictures from last year yeah. and go, oh yeah, I was doing this this time last year. I don't post on social media, but on my phone. Or go back in your phone. Go back in my phone. Or I can find ask someone with a better memory, like your son, what do you do? <laughs> That's right. Ask somebody smarter than you. That'll work out as well. Yeah, I think the opportunity to get out there and, and then try those variables and the days that you think it might not be working, go anyway. Yeah. yeah. Test yourself. You do not get better by fishing on the best days. You get better by fishing on the tough days. Well, a classic example of that was I was probably a freshman in college. I was out on spring break. And I went home, and a buddy of mine wanted to go fishing. And forever and a day, Ben can attest to this, and probably Kevin can too, I was always told, don't fish on an east or northeast wind. It's a horrible time to go fishing. Well, it was my only day to go fishing. Got up that morning. It was east-northeast, probably 20-25. And my dad was like, you're wasting your time. He went and left to go to work, and he's like, you're just wasting your time. I don't even know why you're going. And me and a buddy of mine, we went sunfish fishing. We were looking for red ears. It was April. We were looking for red ears, and we absolutely smoked them. I mean, we were catching, I can't remember how many two-pound red ears we caught that day, but we absolutely smoked red ears. And I get home, didn't tell my dad nothing. He calls me about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, didn't do nothing, did you? I was like, we absolutely <laughs> smoked them. And so the take-home to that is, is maybe just go fishing. Yeah. And it might work out. I like a northeast wind on the coast of the rivers. It's really, really good. But other winds are good too. It yeah. depends on your system. Yeah. The shape of your system, yeah. how the water stacks up on certain winds. Yep. So to have like the fit. You cannot use a blanket statement. East is the least. Yeah. We'll get you in trouble if that's <laughs> the rules you're going by. Yeah. Yeah. But how many times have you heard? Oh, yeah. East. Fish bite the least. Right. I mean, I've heard it a ton in my, my lifetime, especially in my childhood. I can hear my granddaddy saying it right now in yeah. my head. So. Yeah. Anyway. But we still went fishing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it didn't stop us. Yeah, that's for certain. It never stopped us. But no, this has been great. I really want to thank Kevin for having, contributing. For, I want to, what did I say? I want to thank Kevin for coming, not right. for having us. He <laughs> yeah. came to us. It's a long drive. It's really good. He's a tremendous resource for crappy. And other fish. He also knows a lot about a lot of other fish. Yeah. And he's a good part of our staff. I just want to thank him so much for being here. It's fun to talk about crappy. It is. Yeah, we've had a good time and appreciate Kevin being here. I've known Kevin going on 20 years now, and he's just a solid dude and knows a lot about fish. And so I 
encourage our anglers if you want to know more about crappy fishing i'm sure kevin will glad to answer questions if you send them in to us we will point them in that direction if you send them to us at two bald biologists at ncwildlife.org and appreciate y'all listening and we'll see you next time thank y'all thank you Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twobaldbiologist at ncwildlife.org.